Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. We're bringing you another podcast-only episode on an aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic. But before introducing our guest, we're asking your advice from you, our listeners. If you know or are a vaccine researcher who could appear on our show to help our listeners understand the vaccine development process and how to determine which vaccines are being ethically produced, we want you. So please email us, doctor at redeemerradio.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R at redeemerradio.com to let us know. And today our guest is Dr. Peter Malinowski, a private practice clinical psychologist in Indianapolis, a member of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association, and he's someone who's worked for 20 years with patients suffering from all sorts of thought disorders, among many other conditions. Peter's also an avid blogger and podcaster who has a series called Coronavirus Carpe Diem, and co-host a show called Be With the Word that looks at the Sunday Mass readings. He's president and co-founder of a ministry called Souls and Hearts that provides faithful Catholics with guided, customized programs that, that are designed to remove psychological obstacles to giving and receiving love from God and neighbor. That's www.soulsandhearts.com. Peter, welcome to Dr. Doctor. It is a pleasure to be with you. Uh, it's amazing to be with you, Chris. Tom, thank you for having me on here. Sure. Well, the topic of today is the first of a couple shows we're going to do on conspiracy theories. And today we're going to look at the psychological aspects of it with, with Peter's help. And so we're going to start with, uh, with me, an example from my life to show that uh, any of us, uh, especially me, are prone to believe things and not to give up beliefs even in the face of contrary evidence, at least for a while. So as I told Peter, uh, starting in medical school, I gave talks on the medical aspects of the crucifixion because I was actually a student of and did research with uh, Dr. Bill Edwards, who wrote that article way back in 1986 in the Journal of the American Medical Association on the physical death of Jesus Christ. So I gave talks for about 20 years on this subject. But then I saw other researchers saying things that were contrary to what I had learned under my mentor. And this gradually made me more and more uncomfortable to the point that after 20 or so years of talks, I just couldn't do it anymore and stopped giving talks. And then about eight to 10 years after that, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, who some of you may know with EWTN, asked me if I would write a course for Catholic Distance University. On it. And I said I would, and I made myself go back through the research, see what it said objectively, trying to have the truth for whatever people would read the course, and, and greatly change the things that I had believed for so many years. And it was really painful inside, but I finally did it. I feel free because of it, but it was so hard. And that had some emotional attachment to me. But Peter, I can just imagine other things that people believe have even deeper emotional attachment. So how can we use that as a starting point to discuss our penchant to want to or sometimes do believe in conspiracy theories? Well, let, let, that, is a, that is a fantastic example. And I'm really glad you led with that, Tom. So if I can ask you a question, just like, what was it? What was it about this? I mean, because this is something that was obviously near and dear to your heart. Sure. What was it that made it hard for you to make that shift, right? To look at the evidence again. What was it like, what was going on inside you that made it hard? Uh, I think it's, uh, I wouldn't have been able to answer this had I not just read an article about this subject. And that is, well, we often have a, a desire to be right, to know the mm -hmm. truth. We often have a greater desire to have been right. So, so to have to admit that I was wrong for decades of speaking in different states around the country, that was a hard pill to swallow. Not yeah. admitting that the expert wasn't really the expert. Exactly. I mean, that's that's one of the things that that we hear that 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 gets in the way. It's like what are what are we attached to? What are we connected to in some way? And for there's a lot of emotional and um you know a lot of emotional connections to that it gets into things like identity it gets into things like you know am i am i 
Am I right? Am I worthwhile? I mean, it can get into all kinds of really deep primal issues. Well, and, and that am I things- right thing, that's something, you know, in Catholics we talk about guilt, but that am I right thing is, um, is there something wrong with me? Is kind of shame. It's not guilt. Yep. I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. I am wrong. Yep. And, and I realized recently that that can be a problem with us is that shame. If we, if that's exactly right, because if, if we were to fully take stock of, you know, the, the positions that we've had that have been wrong, and that may have misled other people, right? The implications of that start to build yes. up. Yes. The implications start to build up and I've taught something wrong. And so there's a real cost to, um, to admitting that we were, you know, we held positions that were wrong. So it's like, it's remarkable when people can actually make that shift. It takes, it takes, a, it takes a commitment to the truth, but it also takes virtue, particularly the virtue of humility mm. to be able to say, look, you know, I, I, I taught something that wasn't right, or I did something that wasn't right. Um, but it's okay. There's also a real help, too, if we can believe that there's confidence in God. You know, all things work together for good, right? If we can hold on to that, it makes it easier for us to change our positions, too. Well, I Tom, have it's funny I, to hear you use that example. Uh, I, I didn't realize until you just said it. I had the very same example, and I bet a lot of people do, that are converts. Mm. So I spent decades not only not being Catholic, but being pretty vehemently anti-Catholic. Mm-hmm. And then there was a long period of time, I think, when intellectually I knew the right answer. (laughs) But the other part of the intellect said, but you've been saying this for decades. How could you possibly, how could you possibly go back? And it really, it was, it it took the conversion a lot longer than it should have just because of that very angst that I think you're describing. Exactly. And when you get into, it's really interesting to have philosophers as clients, as psychotherapy clients, (laughs) because they believe it's all in the realm of the mind, right? You know, Ah. and it's really fun to watch philosophers argue about things as though they were only in this reified conceptual arena right when i'm thinking about i wonder what went on with your mother you know or other things that that really motivate us right you know there's the the neuroscientists have confirmed that about 10 percent of our cognitive activity is is actually conscious 90 percent is going on in the unconscious roughly um and so there are all kinds of factors that go into this that we're not even aware of and so much of that is driven by emotion so much of that is driven by security needs so much of that is di- is driven by our needs for relationship and what would happen to our relationship and sometimes we get into a lot of fear right a lot of fear of different kinds of things which drives a lot of our beliefs so we often assume that we're far more rational than we really are oh my yeah. Have you have you seen this example with scientists or researchers who are coming to conclusions that they didn't want to come to and that they it's, want to hold on to the previous hypothesis? Oh, all the time. You know, I think the, the biases within the scientific literature are amazing to me. If you look at like if you look at how much of the psychological structure and functioning of the scientist gets brought into the research it's Mm. actually really of concern and i'm not just talking about cases in which there are uh, where there's outright fraud i'm just talking about the biases confirmatory bias you know the the biases that we have that that drive so much of the way that we think and i think if people could really see how much of that happens it actually would be quite unsettling and so we don't want to see it we don't want to see that. Just kind of like what you were talking about, right, Chris, with your conversion story or what Tom was trying was, was talking about with, with his shift. I had a shift too. I mean, I, I, for years, I did not believe that multiple personality disorder existed, you know, that dissociative identity disorder existed. I Unless really you're making like a movie. <laughs> yeah, it seemed, it seemed so foreign. And my mentor, too, didn't believe in it. He was a skeptic, even though it existed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. This is the diagnostic manual that we use for diagnosing uh, psychiatric psychological disorders. And, you know, and I, I held to that position. But p- for me, a lot of it was I didn't want to ever have to deal with that as a clinician. It just seemed like really strange. Um, and you know, I had to learn in the cold, hard crucible of clinical experience that it existed, you know, like, because I wound up with a client where it was unmistakable. And it took me a long time to come around to that point of view as well. So one of the hallmarks of psychological health is the capacity to be 
to be uh, to be able to change our positions. You know, there's a there's a there's an open-minded aspect to this that I think is very directly connected to the virtue of humility. So you mentioned, and that's really relevant when you. St- you mentioned con- I'm sorry, confirmatory that's really- bias or confirmation bias. Yes. Could you explain what that is? Because Chris and I talked about it a little bit yesterday with Barbara Golder in relationship to medical literature. But how is that bias acting in our lives unconsciously? So think about biases as like lenses. You know, you've heard the you've heard the saying. The you know he looks at everything through rose colored glasses, right? Yes. Those lenses. So that's like an optimist that always is spinning everything in a positive way. The lenses and confirmatory bias is what is what we already believe, what we already hold on to as true, right? So, or what we already value. And so it goes back to what you were saying before, Tom. Nobody ever likes to believe that he is wrong, right? So confirmatory bias is the tendency to look for and to favor information or evidence that supports what we already believe, what we already believe. And it also impacts memory too. It helps. It impacts like what we remember, say about a presentation, or what we remember when we read the literature. The stuff that's con- that confirms what we already hold to be true that seems to be much more salient or much more obvious. Peter, so you know what's the secret then, Peter? If if our listeners and 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 ourselves, if we're <laughs> if we're generally trying to pursue truth. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the key? Recognizing those biases, or or what's the key to the the truth pursuer that doesn't want to be misled by his or own his or her own biases? So you can approach it in, from a number of different angles. From a virtue angle, I'm going to go back to the central importance of humility, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to something that's open to multiple interpretations. I'm not talking about, you know, questioning whether. whether God is a Trinity or, you know, or anything like that. I'm talking about the things that are open for, for debate. So this humility, because we have this desire for certainty. We have this desire to like know how things are. That's coming out a lot with this coronavirus thing, right? Everybody wants to hang on the word of the most recent statement and so forth. It becomes very difficult to model these things. The data is incomplete and so forth. People want that certainty. So, I would say humility and then a deep sense of security, a deep sense of, of knowing that you are safe because you are under the wing of God, that you're cherished as the apple of his eye. There is no substitute for that deep certainty, that deep knowing. Because if you're insecure, you're going to, as a human being, be looking for that security. And I think that's what drives a lot of conspiracy theory types of things. That's where we start to see rigid beliefs, extreme beliefs, you know, beliefs that that are implemented in such a way that they violate other people's rights. You know, for example, I think a lot of the extreme beliefs and the extreme behaviors that go with those beliefs are about establishing a sense or reestablishing a sense of security. Peter, in this episode, uh, we want to handle this topic not pointing fingers at, wow, why would they ever believe that? But we want to do this with charity and compassion because we tend to want to take shortcuts in our thinking about what to believe because the world's very complicated. What do you think are some important ground rules for the rest of this episode so that we can do it in a way that will benefit people and not try to point fingers at anybody? Well, I think you started out with a great example, Tom, and like owning kind of our own, and you too, Chris, right? Owning our own. If we can remember, you know, that we are subject to this too, right? You know, there's the old saying that when you point a finger, three fingers point back at you, right? (laughs) Um, So, and to remember that people are, if you go back to Thomas Aquinas, he always says that we pursue the perceived good, right? People are holding on to these beliefs for good motivations, they're trying to do something that they think is helpful to themselves or to other people, right? So if you can, um, if you can hold on to like that there is in there something that's supposed to be helpful, even if the belief seems pretty destructive or a behavior that's attached to the belief seems pretty destructive, that there's good intentions there at, in, in some way. Um, that's often really helpful. And then to be able to foster a sense of curiosity, it takes though a kind of security in the person who is listening to somebody who has got these rigid and extreme beliefs. It takes a kind of security in that person to be able to 
to be able to be open-minded, to be able to be receptive, to, to be able to love the other person. I mean, if we can hold on to that central idea, we want to love people, that's really important. Now, I'm going to switch to the flip side. The flip side is contempt. Contempt is the relationship destroyer. And what is contempt? Contempt is a combination of disgust and anger, right? And what mm-hmm. usually happens when people come up with these rigid extreme beliefs, what we call conspiracy theories, is that they tend to elicit contempt from other people. And then that tends to be really reinforcing. They attempt to elicit it? They, they actually... They actually are I'm sorry I didn't I don't know what exactly what I said there but I they 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 um they tend to elicit contempt okay but they're not they, trying to um that's a complicated question because okay. I would say that oftentimes they are at some level but they are not at another level right okay. because you know to the degree that the person's got a paranoid structure for example they could want to elicit at some level that contempt because it reinforces what they already know that everybody's against them or this person's not reliable and so oh. forth so you, you want to be really careful to not get sucked into the particular dynamics that the um that the parts of the person that you're interacting with are expect this is where you can be like a sign of contradiction, right? This is how Christians can be a sign of contradiction. We don't do what people expect us to do. We don't play the roles that they expect us to play and what they've experienced from people who weren't acting in a Christian way. So when you can approach somebody that's coming with a, a radical extreme idea, a conspiracy theory, and you can be present to that person, you can be relaxed, you can be calm, you can listen, you can be curious about what it means for that person. You can listen for the story underneath the story because there's always a story underneath the story. And that's the critical story to get to. That's what you want to get to. It's what we call the latent content. That's the underlying content, the meaning. Because a lot of the, a lot of the stuff around conspiracy theories is actually about survival. That's really what the person is, uh, is struggling with. They may be talking about you know, a particular topic that's a hot button topic like vaccines or something like that, but they're actually dealing with something around survival. Um, and that could be in the spiritual realm, that could be in the physical realm, that could be in the relational realm. So, so Peter, so, we often try to do shortcuts in our thinking. Uh, yes. In fact, the researcher Daniel Kahneman talks about system one and system two, fast, intuitive thinking, slow, rational painfully energy sucking type of thinking. How does that play into this? Well, that's a really great point. Like I said before, about 90% of our cognitive activity is not in conscious awareness. And we, it can't be right because we can't process everything with all of our energy all at once. We've got to have these shortcuts, you know, most of the time they actually work fairly well, but they are very intuitive, they're, they're, and they're prone to, to having these sort of dislocations, right? So it's, um, and the emotion aspects of this tend to be much more connected with what Daniel Kahneman talks about that is that fast thinking, right? It's where we come to those conclusions very rapidly. Um, and then the slow thinking, though, is, like you said, more sort of rational, more logical, brings in more evidence. I would argue that as a clinical psychologist, you've got to remember that Daniel Kahneman is a cognitive psychologist. He's actually not all that interested in um, the clinical phenomena that I'm interested in. I think it has a lot more to do with psychological factors that actually some of them go back to childhood and some of them actually are deeply uh, engaged with emotion, deeply engaged with emotion. So um, it varies a lot from person to person how that's going to play out in their thinking. Some people's emotions really impact their thinking a tremendous amount, even their slow thinking. Others, emotion, others you know, have a way of really sort of segregating things, but they can actually drain all of the emotion out of their thinking, and they become sort of hyper-rational like Spock, you know, and there's a real loss there too. There's something less than fully human. That's kind of why in Star Trek, the original one, Spock and Bones McCoy were always going at yes, it, seeing things yes. entirely differently, right? Because they're operating on two extremes of the continuum. You know, Bones McCoy, very emotional, very intuitive, very relational in his thinking. Spock, very analytical, very logical, very conceptual, right? So I think what Kahneman's onto here is in one element of how we think but because he's not bringing in as much of the clinical stuff, uh, there's some things that are also missing from what he's, what he's looking at uh, as well. So, 
So I'm really interested in like, how does this all go back to, you know, our entire history and the, the ways that it impacts us. And those actually are fairly predictable if you can actually get to really know yourself and if you can really get to know the person that you're with. I'm going to jump in because, you know, you did the unthinkable and you mentioned Star Trek. And then <laughs> now we're at risk of, of Tom taking us completely off. Where no man has gone before. Well, as a good Samaritan, I'll step in. <laughs> you know, for our listeners, they might be wondering, why are we talking from an authentically Catholic perspective about thinking and conspiracy theories and, uh, and, and the like? And I, I think it's good to point out so much of what's going on with the pandemic is misunderstanding of people that appear to be on opposite sides uh, of the topic. And there's, there's not the assumption of good intent. And instead right. their, their thinking goes off the rails and then it becomes argumentative and accusatory. Of course that could be everyday life. It doesn't have to be the pandemic, but this is probably one of those times where if we were better at the skills you're describing, we might be better off as a nation during the pandemic, wouldn't we? I, I totally think I totally think that's right. I think the reason why the pandemic is such a has such an impact, though, is because it's very clearly about life and death, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's hard to it's not even symbolic. You know, this is an actual death. If you catch it and you are you know at risk, you're likely you're likely to have negative health implications, and that could lead to your death, right? So I think what it does is it focuses a lot of things, and it brings it right into the culture. And I think also people are there is a tendency in us to want to polarize and to, uh, and to, and to get into conflicts. I mean, that's part of our fallen natures, right? And, um, and to feel threatened when other people don't think the same way we do. And when something is so unclear, but so prominent, it's hard to get away from all the COVID-19 stuff. And so uh, when the stakes are so high, you know, then you've got the, you've got a perfect storm for, uh, for interpersonal conflict, for all kinds of ideas coming up, you know, that, uh, that can vary across the spectrum. Peter, I like quotes sometimes, and here's a couple that kind of crystallize this for me. One from Warren Buffett uh, who said that what the human being is best at doing is interpreting all new information so that their prior conclusions remain intact. And, and the second one is from someone who came a long time before him, Leo Tolstoy, who said, the most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he has not formed any idea of them already. But the simplest thing cannot be made clear to the most intelligent man if he is firmly persuaded that he knows already without a shadow of a doubt what is laid before him. What do these two quotes um, have to do with the reality of the difficulties we have interpreting so much data around us? So I think it's really hard when people are feeling threatened for them to be open-minded, right? So I think the number one thing that I go back to, if you want to be able to think clearly, is to have a sense of security, to have a mm -hmm. sense of being grounded, right? And what's happening right now is the kind of things that people have invested their security in are being stripped away. Like if you uh -huh. invested your security in your job and now that's under threat or it's gone, okay, your 401k just took a hit of 30%. The security levels have gone down. If you know you're now uh, in um, in uh, lockdown with your uh, your spouse, and you know the cracks are starting to come because you don't have your typical ways of coping, and security levels go down, right? So, um, so what I think is happening is that we're experiencing a real lack of security, and that's driving a bunch of symptoms, right? And one of the symptoms is anxiety. Anxiety levels are going up because of the lack of security. And, you know, tolerance for uncertainty is going down. So we want to, we, you know, we want to be able to know what's going to happen. And people hang on these models, most of which, you know, have been tremendously flawed. It's very difficult to model the course of a disease like this. But, and then people are, are disappointed and they feel also like they've been misled, right? Even because they have trouble understanding that, you know, epidemiological models and predictive models of this sort of stuff are, are only as good as the data going in. The data actually has, you know, a number of different problems because of limits of testing and so forth. So then they start to become 
you know, wanting to, wanting to blame something. You want to blame something concrete. It's hard to blame a virus, right? So, <laughs> so who can we blame? Like, who are, what are the governments that are involved? What are the international organizations involved? You know, what are, you know, what, how is the media involved in this sort of thing? There, want, there wants to, there's a fantasy, I think, in our, in our culture that if only we do things right, nothing bad will ever happen, right? If only we are competent enough, it comes right out of the enlightenment, right? If we're only competent enough and technologically advanced enough, then nothing bad should happen. And so because we've gotten away from real sources of security and we've invested as a culture in so many of these false, you know, these false worldly security substitutes, I think we're, 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 uh, we're now reaping that whirlwind. So, Peter, it's now time for the definition. What is a conspiracy theory? All right, so... A conspiracy theory is basically a way to explain events or situations that invokes like some kind of conspiracy, some kind of group of people that is basically ordering things in such a way as to, um, as to bring about some desired outcome that benefits them, right? So, and is um, it usually not... Uh, is it usually thought to be nefarious? Yes, it's usually, yeah, it's usually hidden. hidden, It's usually secret. It's usually hidden. And the term is, is, um, and the term is kind of got a pejorative connotation, right? I mean, it's used in sometimes a contemptuous way. You know, that's just a conspiracy theory, right? It's often because the, because the content is so, um, usually so provocative and so emotionally evocative, it tends to elicit strong reactions. So even using the term can kind of be problematic. But yeah, the thing about conspiracy theories though is that they resist falsification. In other words, you, it's very difficult to prove whether a conspiracy theory is true or false because the way it's set up resists being definitively shown to be one way or another, right? So there is sort of this wiggle room in there um, and they're reinforced by a kind of circular reasoning usually. So it becomes very hard to talk about this in a, in a, in a logical way, especially when the arguments are heated um, about like, what are the actual, what is the actual evidence to support, you know, this kind of, um, this kind of view versus that kind of view. And Peter, it seems as we've talked to other people that often in the conspiracy theories, there are elements of truth. Yeah. Uh, which seems to, it seems to make it even harder to get past because there can be little pieces of, of the whole conspiracy that it could be based in fact, uh, but the, the final analysis is incorrect and they can demonstrate that there are pieces of fact. That makes it more challenging. That makes it more challenging. And what really makes it the most challenging though is that the conspiracy theory makes sense of a difficult situation mm-hmm. in a way that appears to satisfy the underlying psychological and emotional and relational and security needs of the person. Mm. And that's what makes them really sticky. That's what makes them really hard to dislodge. And most of the time what people do is they go after it hammer and tongs just on the, on the, on the intellectual level. And what that does is it simply reinforces the, um, the clinging to it, right? It's kind of like Aesop's fable, you know, the wind in the sun, you know, the wind wants to blow the cloak off the man, right? So it blows harder and harder. And what the man does in response is to hold the cloak tighter and tighter and tighter. Whereas what the sun does is it comes out, right? Shines on the man, right? The man warms up and he chooses to take the cloak off. Okay. (laughs) That and that's that's the secret to actually working with people that have these kind of extreme beliefs of whatever kind, right? Is you want to get at why is the man wearing the cloak in the first place? Because he's cold, right? You don't want to make him colder and blow his cloak off. You actually want to create an environment in which he can feel like he has what he needs to take the cloak off. So, Peter, if you suffer from allergies in the spring when the pollen's out your underlying condition gets worse. If someone is susceptible maybe to this kind of thinking, does something like a pandemic... Uh, oh, just exacerbates it. Yeah, just, just it can drive it right through the roof, right? And that's, that's where you're seeing. And I don't actually think we've seen the worst of it yet because now, you know, you can get through on adrenaline and kind of on your, your coping, you know, your, your basic coping skills for six, seven, eight, nine weeks, right? And that's one of the reasons why we're having the reopening now. It's not 
you know, all driven just by what the epidemiological data says. It's driven by what people can tolerate. You know, thank so, you for you, saying that, Peter. <laughs> I have suspected that. Not that you know, I disagree with the reopenings right, that are going right. on, but that makes emotional sense. But I think we've all witnessed, uh, and, and a lot of our guests have talked about, there, there is some heretofore undefined limit of what people can tolerate. And right. after that, they just they become cynical and frustrated and right. they can't take it anymore. So, Peter, a, how can we be more of the sun than the wind? Than the wind. Those around us. So a lot of, I'm going to suggest it really starts with us, right? Because what, what people typically get drawn into is how do I change the other person? How can I make this other person see the light? How can I make this person not act so crazy, you know, and so on and so forth? I really believe it starts with us, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk. So the first thing is primum non nocere, right? First, do no harm, right? <laughs> yes, okay, yes. you guys are very familiar, Hippocratic yes. Oath, right? Yeah. You know, if you're not in a good mood and Uncle Ben is over for, you know, over for, <laughs> for dinner and he starts going off on his thing, you know, and you have just had it, it's not the time to talk with Uncle Ben about his, about his theory, right? His thing, you know, yes. his thing. Um, you know, so we want to be in a really good place. And we all want to understand that there are really good reasons why Uncle Ben holds the positions that he does. There's a coherence there if you can actually understand it. And it may well be, it usually is that Uncle Ben doesn't even understand why he holds what he holds. Okay, he can't even articulate how his particular set of beliefs is a response to what he's experienced in the past. So this real, this real, if you can understand that he is functioning from probably a pretty um, young place, a, a scared place that there are you know, security concerns, because that's hard to do with folks that get belligerent about their beliefs, right? They look big, they look large, they look powerful, they don't look scared. Mm -hmm. They don't look, they don't look like they're, um, in fear of, you know, attachment concerns or, or existential concerns or security concerns. They're large and in charge, but really they're really frightened. And I see this over and over and over and over again in, in my office, right? When you actually get below the surface to the story underneath the story, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of wounds. There's a lot of uh, fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of insecurity. Um, and so if you can just listen and start to ask questions, you know, like, um, and it can be like, just not that you want them to just go on and on uh, about the story, but you can also say, you know, what, what, what's it like for you if, if, if somebody doesn't agree with you? Like, what does that mean to you? If somebody doesn't agree to you, just help them be able to think through that because they might be able to articulate, well, then I think you're going to die. I mean, I, I think if you don't believe in what I'm saying, you're going to die. Now you're in a different space with the person, right? Now they're actually concerned about your life. Um, and that can, that can lead to a whole different way of relating, right? Because now you're talking about the connection between the two. So if there's a conflict between you and Uncle Ben, and Uncle Ben thinks that you're a promising young physician, you know, and, you know, he really wants to see you thrive. And, you know, he had people that died, you know, uh, that he was close to because they weren't careful or whatever. You start to get into the stories because he doesn't even, he's not even aware of it. And you don't have to be a clinician to do this. You just have to be calm, grounded, open-minded yourself in a position to be able to, to be with him. It's really helpful to prepare for these things in prayer, to see what lights come before, you know, to come before and ask for the Holy Spirit to guide how to, how, to, how to respond to somebody like this, but to get at the story underneath the story, right? The son knew that the man on the road was cold. He knew that he needed warmth, right? And so that's how he was able to win the bet with the wind in Aesop's fable. So um, delusions, for example, uh, I've worked with a lot of people that have suffered from delusions and they can sound, you know, quote, crazy, end quote. This stuff just seems like it's totally out of left field. The first thing I do, and I learned this from Bertram Karen, the first thing I do when somebody comes into my office with delusions, the first thing I do is I tell them, I'm not going to kill you and I'm not going to let anyone else kill you. Because underneath almost every delusion is a fear of existential or physical annihilation, wow. right? So they may be talking about, you know, you know, you know, uh, Romanian secret agents, you know, and so on and so forth and going on about all of that. But if you get to the story beneath the story, they're terrified. They're terrified of their physical integrity. And you almost always, when you have delusions that are not uh, medically 
generated, you know, where there's a head injury or something like that. When you, when you have psychogenic uh, delusions, there's a, there's a terrible trauma history. You see that with schizophrenia. You see that with multiple personality disorder, which we now call dissociative identity disorder. All of, all of those where you have a disconnect from reality, um, that disconnect from reality has a huge cost. And the person is only going to choose that if what they're defending against is worse than the cost of disconnecting from reality. And so there's really only one thing worse than disconnecting from reality, and that is being annihilated, right? Because disconnecting from reality has all kinds of costs. It's a huge amount of costs there. So, so if, uh, when I see somebody that's delusional, uh, it's easy to write them off as crazy and to treat them with contempt. Why? Because our own fear comes up. Like, there but for the grace of God goes I. That could be me. There's like a lot of concerns that we have about that sort of stuff that happen, right? And so young clinicians really struggle with heavy-duty presentations like that. And one of the things that I spend time with them doing is just being secure and just understanding that these things actually do make sense. And once those young clinicians get that that makes sense, they're such in a better position to help the client because they're not being overwhelmed, you know, by their own fears about what the client's presenting them with. So going back to your own sense of security, your own sense of, of groundedness, that's the number one thing. Cause if you can operate from that, you know, whatever you're going to do is going to be helpful. If you are insecure, if you're, if you're dis, if you're destabilized and you're not much as good's going to come from that, even if you have the magic right words to say or whatever, people can sense that that's not coming from a good place within you. But to differentiate, when you say secure, you don't mean confidence in that your position is right. No. I'm secure no. enough that if I'm wrong, I'm still okay. And I'm secure enough that even if, um, even if I'm, sec I'm talking about security like Psalm 23, right? You know, um, I'm talking about that kind of security. Mm -hmm. That even if I were to die, that that's not the end of the story, right? That even if, um, even if these terrible things that, you know, were happening, you know, that are happening in the world could happen to me, they're not happening um, without God knowing about them and without God loving me, right? God knows where every electron and every atom and every molecule of every one of these little viruses creeping around is at any given time. It's not that he's off in some distant quasar. He knows exactly what's going on. And so a lot of this comes down to what do we, what, how do we really understand ourselves in relationship with that God? If we really believe Psalm 23, we're not going to get very destabilized. We're not going to lose our center of gravity. But most of us don't have that very well integrated across all of who we are, right? It stops at certain points. There's a certain point where a whole different process takes over, right? We get into very different modes of operating. And, um, and so one of the things that I think about a lot is internal, internal evangelization. Have we really reached the realms within us, going back to the Star Trek, right, where no man has gone before? <laughs> there are parts within us where we have not been before, right? We are not aware of them. And then we can't use the intellect and the will, right? So I'm really into, like, self-awareness, really into accepting these things about ourselves. You know, the saints talk about how wretched they are. They never talk about how how well-adjusted they are. They talk about how wretched they are, you know? And I, when I was in high school, I thought, you know, that's just gilding the lily. These guys are, you know, these guys must be putting on some sort of show. But what I realized was saints really know who they are. They really know who they are and they can tolerate their own disorder, the recognition of their own disorder uh, in part because they have certain virtues like humility, but also because they know at a deep core level that God loves them and that he accepts them as they are and that he embraces them and he cherishes them. And so then with that awareness of God being near, they can, he, they can see themselves as they are. The rest of us, you know, are protected from being totally overwhelmed by our defenses. And what you see happening with some of these conspiracy theories and these thought disorders and things like that are failures of other defenses to uh, protect us. But ultimately, we don't want to have it to, to rely on those defenses at all. We want to be able to be secure enough in God that we don't have to dissociate from those aspects of us. Because if you look at how much psychological disorder is in us, it is huge. You think about what happened. You physicians, I want you to think about what happened in the Garden of Eden, right, with the fall to the human body, right? Sickness, death, 
pain, you have an you, now you have physical work, pain and childbirth, you have a devastating, catastrophic event to the human body, right? Never supposed to be like that. It wasn't designed like that. You know, God obviously knew what's going to happen. I'm going to argue as a psychologist, the same thing happened to our psyche. The same thing happened to us psychologically, but we're just not nearly as aware of it. So, um, so, you know, and very few people get to those kind of depths or into that kind of realm, which is why most of our treatments for, for psychotic disorders, for example, are almost exclusively now, um, they're almost exclusively medical. They're almost exclusively drug pharmacological based, but there's a reason there's a reason. Yes, of course, there's chemical imbalances. You can look at serotonin levels and dopamine levels and all of that. But why do those levels, why do those levels change? It's because something has gone on, you know, at the core of that person. And all disorder, whether that be medical or physical or psychological, all disorder came into the world with sin. It's all ultimately, you can trace it all back to original sin, the sins of others, our own personal sins. So Peter, you know, clearly the, the pandemic is you know, called an, cause an exacerbation of underlying psychopathologies, as you're describing. Right. Um, but even beyond the pandemic, it feels like our, our, uh, our nation, uh, our relationships have drifted towards being more and more polar opposites, whether we're talking about presidential elections right. or approach to the pandemic. Right. And I know it's tempting to always think that we live in the worst of times, but <laughs> as you take care of people, do you, do you see that we, we are becoming more polarized in our thinking? And if so, how do we ever begin to bridge those gaps so that we can actually interact without fighting, per se? I think the, the, the polarizations in our culture, which I agree with you, Chris, are absolutely on the rise. They're absolutely on the rise. And it's really troubling to systems thinkers like me who actually think in terms of systems. I think what it does is it's reflecting the polarizations that are within us. I think we're less integrated than, uh, than people used to be in some ways, right? Because we've gotten further and further away from natural law. We've had the breakdown of the family. We're seeing, you know, we're starting to reap a lot of the societal uh, uh, repercussions of the sexual revolution. Um, we're, we're seeing basic uh, social norms that had been established, grounded in a lot of uh, Judeo-Christian principles being discarded. Um, and so we're also losing the capacity because of the degree of insecurity, because of the degree of, um, because of the degree of uh, anxiety, people are becoming more and more and more self-absorbed. And that's why you have people fighting over water, right, in, uh, in a Costco, right? It's not that they're thirsty, they're not thirsty, right? They're, they're, that water symbolizes something. It symbolizes something around security. If I don't, it's kind of boiled down to, if I don't have that water, I might die of thirst, right? It's not a, it's not a, it's, and that's why you actually get physical altercations. It's that kind of thing. And I think we're, we're, we're that close to a tipping point, you know, uh, where, some people are really going to lose it. You look at you know, calls to suicide hotlines skyrocketing now, right? right? Because again, the veneer of normalcy is being really, really shaken. So what we need is actually to go back to on a person-by-person -person basis. I'm not a big believer as a clinical psychologist that we can just solve this politically, or that we can solve this through education, or that we can solve this through some sort of you know, government program, or we can solve it through some sort of societal level change. I think really what we need are a few saints you know, that are really going to model for us like what it means to be a well-integrated person, not just on the spiritual level, but also on the natural level. I mean, I think, I think we're having a breakdown on the natural level. That's why, that's why the spiritual life is having such a hard time. And I think at our present age is because, because grace perfects nature, you know, it's got to work with nature and nature is just getting so distorted right now. That's one of the reasons why, that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to evangelize now is people think they know what Christianity is because they've experienced the behavior of people who have identified themselves as Christians. They think they know what it is. So going back to like changing their mind, right? They're, they're not blank slates when it comes to Christianity. They have all sorts of notions that are primarily negative about Christianity. Well, so there's almost like a double confusion. I'd yeah. like to ask you, because I've read in multiple websites, I want to know if this is true or not, that um, religious believers and those who might identify as conservative politically are more prone to conspiracy theories than those who are not. 
true or false? Again, I'm going to give a nuanced answer to that. Great. So if you take what, so conspiracy theories are largely defined by the culture in which they happen in. Okay. Because, because what you're doing is you're basically departing radically from the consensus. You know, it could be the consensus of the experts in the field, or it could be the consensus of the society. Right. Um, and so, you know, and I would consider ourselves to be as, as believing Christians outside that mainstream. Right. So, um, you know, there are people that could believe that we are conspiracy theorists because, we actually believe in the resurrection, right? <laughs> I mean, and we would say there was an actual conspiracy. Look at Matthew 28, right? They paid off the Jew, the Jewish leaders paid exactly, off the guards, exactly. right? You know, that, is that a theory? You no. know, I mean, you know, so, so it, it gets to be really hard to kind of determine because you have to decide who's the arbiter of truth here. Who's mm. the arbiter of what really exists. And by, by nature, these conspiracy theories are non, non falsifiable, but I will say a couple of things about this with regard to Catholics. See, Catholics, we actually believe in evil, right? And we actually believe in an in a, in a organized and coherent uh, embodiment of evil in Satan, right? And his minions, right? You know, so is that a conspiracy theory? You know, uh, you know, people, so Catholics that actually believe in the reality of hell, that believe in the reality of Satan, that believe in the reality of demons, um, it, we, can, we, can, we can wonder you know, if that's going on, as opposed to someone who's naive, right? Who just believes that all, you know, all, um, all evil is a function of mental illness, which is a great disservice to those that actually have mental illnesses, by the way, if you're going to attribute all evil to them, wow. uh, it's really unfair. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, but I think there are particular personality styles, uh, folks that are paranoid, right? Uh, who really look at the goodness is within and the badness is without. Right, this is a really easy way to kind of assess somebody. I teach this to graduate students. Like, where is the goodness for this client? Is the goodness within or is the goodness without? If the goodness is without, you'll see like personality styles that have more to do with like dependency, right? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to affiliate myself to this person because I see them as good and I don't think I'm, that I'm good. So I'm going to become, you know, really like a doormat for that person. Well, on the other end of the spectrum, you have ones that are much more the goodness is in here and I need to protect it from the badness without. So personality styles that include things like paranoia or narcissism are going are gonna to see the badness outside and want to defend against it and look at things as sort of conspiring, um, you know, as sort of conspiring against them in some way, you know? So, so I do see that in certain kinds of Catholic communities where there's more of a siege mentality, more of an us against them mentality, you're likely to see more of, um, see more of, uh, of these kinds of beliefs, rigid beliefs being more popular. And those that also have more difficulty accepting uh, authority. Right. So, so for example, in a set of Acantes circles, you will see, oh, these are ones that don't accept the authority of the Pope, right? Mm -hmm. The Pope is not, you'll see a lot more. And I work with some folks in those communities because I'm a traditional Catholic. I go to the Latin mass. And so I'm kind of a bridge to some of those, uh, to some of those communities. Um, and, um, and you will sometimes see that being sort of exacerbated uh, there, but there's also a reason why people join those communities is because oftentimes they've had a very terrible experience of authority, right? Um, you know, and so that impacts the way that they look at the church. That impacts the way they look at uh, at other authorities. Uh, that's one of the top things I look at when I evaluate seminarians is what is their attitude toward authority? What is their what are their you know what is their uh, what is their experience of authority? Because it has a real predictive impact on how well they're going to adapt to uh, being in a position of obedience in ministry. So Peter, we need your advice, Tom and I. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've reached a level of success and that now we're getting hate mail. <laughs> and so we've, uh, we've each experienced some, uh, some, some pretty tough conspiracy accusations coming at us. Right. Things about, uh, about uh, the pandemic with. Not know, that we're like part we're, of it, at least not yet. <laughs> you haven't been that successful yet. No. <laughs> but you got always something others, to strive for, though, Chris. Yeah, you know. that, that others are, uh, you know, inappropriately or manipulating the data, and the deaths are really worse or better or this or that. Um, it, it can be really pretty far fetched and pretty emotional. Right. What's the compassionate and reasonable approach to respond to those kinds of uh, accusations, if you will? 
So yeah, it's, it's basically a question of how do we operate in the mode of the receiver, right? How do we, how do we operate in the mode of the receiver, excuse me, in the mode of the receiver? The, um, so the first thing again, primum no nocere, don't, don't fire off a, a, a salty, hasty email back, okay, right? Which sometimes can be really hard, right? Because sometimes you're at the end of the day, you know, and you just didn't need somebody impugning your, your credentials or your integrity, right? Um, uh, you also have to recognize that most of this is not going to be resolved through your interactions. The best thing you can do for these, for these kinds of situations is to pray for the people. Really, it's far more effective than to engage them when it's unlikely that you'll be able to enter into a deep enough relationship with them where you can be the sun. You know, the, the likelihood of you doing that with somebody who's firing off emails through your, you know, through your web portal, you know, is, is pretty low. So if we the kind of prayer is you, from people, you know, you like people we know well, you know, right. highly educated, successful yes. in business, and they send a yes. text. What do you think about this conspiracy video or this video, which is about conspiracy theories? What do we do with that? Because, you know, what you explained to me, to us earlier about you feel contempt, you know, disgust plus right. anger. Right. Yeah, I had the worst morning of the pandemic a week ago because of getting a series of these. Right, right. So, so again, I would say if you're, if you're caught up in that, you got to wait. You got to wait. There's no, no good going to come from responding from that kind of a position. Uh, the second thing is you have to assess how much you can actually invest in the relationship. It's very different if it's your brother-in-law than if it is somebody you've never heard of that, you know, is using a screen name, you know, that, you know, so... So you have to kind of um, you have to kind of think about like you know resources and so forth, trusting that um, trusting that there is a way for them out of this. If they if they want to if they seek, they actually will find. Remember that most are not going to seek. Okay, most of them, no matter what you do, are not going to get it. This is like. This is, this is straight out of John 6, right? The discourse on the bread of life. It wasn't that our Lord explained it badly. You know, it wasn't that he, you know, had poor, you know, poor, ex, you know, exposition skills or, you know, sometimes people are just not going to accept it. And we have to understand that they have their free will. They have their own capacity to make decisions and we got to respect that. And, and it's a sort of, uh, it's a sort of almost like ironical evidence of people's free will, right? Is that they can believe something like that, right? So, um, so I think the main thing though, is that if you can, if you can get at like that question I asked before, like, tell me about why it's important for, for me to see this. Tell me why it's important for me to watch this video. And what, what do you think I'll get from it? Right. And then ask the follow up question. Okay. So if I understand that, if, if I do get that from it, like, what are you hoping that that will bring, bring me to, or bring to me? Like what is, so you're trying to get at what's the good that they're actually seeking. It's really important that we don't reduce them down to just two dimensional, uh, like cardboard cutouts with a talking head that are parroting, um, you know, the talking points from, you know, from, you know, from some, some uh, radio personality that's you know that's way off the rails. You know, let's let's actually let's actually assume that there's a inner coherence, you know, behind why they're acting the way that they're acting, and and see if we can get there. Now, again, you have to weigh how much is going on. If I'm checking out my groceries and the checkout clerk is telling me about this, I'm not going to enter into as much you know as I am if I have a client that's really struggling with something like this or a relative that's struggling with something like this. You know, Peter, listening to you, I think you've just done a primer for us on how to talk about politics, how to get through Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner, um, how, to deal, how to deal with that colleague at work. Uh, I remember as a medical student realizing that uh, physicians in particular are not very good at disagreeing uh, yeah. as opposed to our colleagues in the law are professional <laughs> disagreeers. You know, Tom, will, Tom will say, you use this antibiotic and I'll say no. And then his reaction is, well, then you're dumb. <laughs> That's the kind then, version, Chris. I think there's something unique in medicine, particularly in healthcare in general, but among physicians that we are so invested in, in being right. And as Tom pointed out earlier, earlier having been right, right. that we, we can't right. get out of it without hating each other. 
Uh, and that, yeah, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. Whereas for attorneys, they can like be at it, hammer and tongs in the courtroom, <laughs> and then go out to lunch afterward, and it's it's left there. It's a phenomenon I've seen too. It's like, whoa, that's really strange. Yes, right? yes, it is. Yeah. So we want to we want to be able to in areas in which there is uh, you know no definitive teaching, you know, to be really open to different to different ideas. I've radically changed the way that I've practiced, and at least. Three times throughout my career in the last twenty years, radically different ways, and you know because I've I've come across things like Tom was talking about. He came across you came across that evidence, you know, where it's like wow. So, so it goes back to you know that humility. And the other thing that happens is that, and this is this is really important. I'm glad I'm glad we're getting to this. Is that just because we listen to somebody doesn't mean that we agree with them. We don't have to argue with them to prove that we don't agree with them. We can disagree with them silently, right? And we can disagree with them and they might not even know it. And just because we listen to them doesn't mean that we are endorsing or embracing their positions. I think you know sometimes- what that reminds some- me of, Peter? I think this is a good point because I learned about it from a, a friend of Chris and mine, Mike McCartney. He asked us during this workshop, I want you to respond to what that person said without agreeing or disagreeing with them. Right. And people are right. like, well, how can you do that? You right. ask a question. You ask a question, or you can even, you can in, in, or you can give like something like, "Well, tell me more about that." You know, or you can actually draw them out. You can you can and you can actually Excellent. you can actually you can actually steer them. So, so if everybody believed this, if we all came together and believed it, like how would it? How, you know, what would be different? You know, what you're saying there, it seems to me, is you're saying I care about you as a person more yes. than I care about you as having a position. That's right. That's right. And so we're really thinking about winning the arguer rather than winning the argument. And we do that. We do that. that. We do that with charity, right? Humility and charity. Those are the two. And patience. We're going to bring in patience too, especially in this kind of material. Humility, charity, and patience. Yeah. Because otherwise we could, you know, sometimes manhandle somebody into submitting, but what was their experience, right? And that's not how God works with us. He doesn't manhandle us into agreeing with him by power and might. He speaks very softly to us, you know. And Tom and I, Tom and I had an epidemiologist on the program not too long ago that pointed out he thought there was a phenomenon of, of this pandemic and that people seem to be unable to hold two positions. One, that this is really bad. There's mm-hmm. a lot of death and this is bad. Mm-hmm. And two, in some cases, we may have overreacted or reacted inappropriately that they, they seem to disallow themselves from having those two positions and that that's sort of a new phenomenon that, that seems to have occurred. But a little more humility and a little more patience would allow you to do that. Would allow you to do that, yeah. So, Pierre, yeah. Can, can you give us a, a way to talk about some of the, the data or claims of the conspiracy theories that might be in there, or should we not talk about them? I would talk about them in to the degree that they impact the person, right? So the meaning making for the person is what I would want to get at. I wouldn't want to get into arguments about like what the Johns Hopkins website says versus, you know, Worldometer, those kinds of <laughs> things, right? That does, it seems like a, a rabbit's, you know, that, that's going down the rabbit hole um, or arguing about what the Chinese revealed or didn't reveal, you know, the Chinese government revealed or didn't reveal and what's really out there. It's stuff that can't be known. I would focus on the, on the impact because this is what almost nobody is doing is looking at the impact on me. You know, in, in, a, in an environment where there's the sun is shining and there's care, right? And then you'll wind up with people opening up because so much of this is really about security and, and safety. And if you look like somebody that could provide that, they, a lot of people will become very receptive to that very quickly, you know, and they'll actually even tolerate you disagreeing with them if they feel safe with you doing that. Because oh. I know I have clients that do, that know that I don't believe some of the things that they really deeply believe, but they do believe I care about them. They do believe that I care about them. And so therefore we have a basis for connecting, right? We've gone beyond, I've passed the test of, will you fight me if I bring out my lances or, you know, or will you, or will you just step aside or even let me wound you with one and not retaliate. Right. Um, you know, and then some of it is also about like 
not being wounded by that stuff. You know, I understand as a clinician that it's not about the surface story, you know, and that makes it a lot easier. It's about the underlying story. And then if you get really good at it, you can think about, well, what's your role now in the underlying story? Like what's you, what's, what's your script in the, in the surface story versus the, the script now that you could rewrite in the deeper story. And that's when you really begin to love that person. You're in that story that in a way they never expect it. You know, when they're all caught up in all their agitation and insecurity and anxiety and all of that. And that's, the be- that's where the beautiful things happen. That's where the beautiful things happen because then, they're, then they will open up. Um, and it takes, sometimes it takes a lot of time though, depending on the person's history. So, but if you can actually stay with that first thing, premium, no, no, cherry, first do no harm, that really, that, that's huge. That's huge. Because most of the time when people are battling these things, nobody's thinking about that, you know, and, and then, and there's just, you know, there's just an escalation of that, of that um, polarization that we were talking about before. Well, Peter, you've given us some amazing, amazing tools. Uh, I feel like I want to rush out and Start an argument just so I can practice. (laughs) (laughs) But you really have. But as we try to sort of tie it all together with the sort of this pandemic times in which we live, what's your takeaway message to uh, our listeners and, and their loved ones about dealing with some of these feelings? So first of all, you know how when you're in an aircraft, you know, and they give you the safety instructions, you know, first put your own oxygen mask on, right? right. You know, or, you know, as, it's going to be that is to, is to really work on your own sense of security. Because if you don't know what you think and feel and all the anxieties you have about the pandemic, you know, that, that's going to stuff, that's going to be triggered by other people who are, who are ramping up. So that groundedness in the daily prayer routine, right? You want to have that connection with God. You want to be, you want to be really as solid as you can reasonably be in that relationship. It's going to provide you with a, a, a base to work from for other people. That's the thing I focus on with graduate students all the time. It's very hard to turn an insecure person into a therapist that can provide security to another person. You just, you just, can't have that right uh, so so it's really about the formation not just the spiritual formation but the human formation of you right as that instrument in god's hands that's the most important thing so how do you do that it's by taking care of yourself you know in terms of your natural needs and then also in terms of your spiritual needs that's the number one thing if you do that you will be light and salt you don't have to actually plan out anything. You don't need any scripts. You don't need any additional training. It's sort of like the difference between somebody who acts like a good mother and someone who is a good mother. Who would you rather have as your mother? Someone who has the identity, who is grounded in good motherhood, right? It's going to flow from that. That's why I don't want it. We'll always have leading edges where we have to work on certain things in terms of our techniques and all of that. But we want it to be coming from us, our essential. Our, so, so, you know, if you guys are frustrated by these things, what about it is frustrating you? Like, what about it is really getting at you? Is it hitting some particular nerve, some particular trigger, some particular vice, you know, something, something where you're lacking in virtue and being really working on that? Or is it reminding you of somebody, right? Does this, does this all going back to your grandpa who had some of these crazy ideas about like, you know, whatever in the, in the past? If you can work through that sort of stuff, it's going to make it so much easier to work with the people than the here and now that you're experiencing. So I would say really it's about, it's really about just regulating your own system because you can't regulate somebody else's system. You know, you can't help them regulate their system if you're not regulated yourself. That's the biggest final question. What do you want listeners to know about your ministry of souls and hearts? So it's all, it's all about what we've been talking about here. It's all about how do you ground psychology in a Catholic anthropology, right? In a Catholic worldview. We're all about making Catholic psychology available to Catholics on the web. So we offer practical and cost-effective web-based resources to help individuals, families, spouses overcome psychological impediments to receiving God's love and to loving God and neighbor. That's what the whole thing is about. Any psychological issue you have, and I'm not talking about disorders that are diagnosable and all that, any psychological issue you have, in relating with, with other people, you're going to bring into your relationship with God. So we're all about shoring up the natural foundation for the spiritual life, right? We're all about helping people resolve the psychological barriers that separate them from God in some way. Because there's other barriers too. There's spiritual barriers, there's moral barriers, things like that to get in the way of sin. We're all about like 
reestablishing that natural foundation and providing the human formation. We do that through courses and podcasts and blogs. We've actually, I've actually, you mentioned it before at the top of the broadcast. I have a, a podcast called Coronavirus Crisis Carpe Diem. It's about taking advantage of the opportunities that this thing offers us, right? This isn't, this is a gift to us. If we really believe Romans eight twenty eight, right? All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. This is really an opportunity for us to see our weaknesses, you know, and to come into deeper contact, deeper trust, deeper love of God as our securities get stripped away. So I am, that's what that's all about. Soulsandhearts.com. We got lots of things there. Most of our resources are, are free for folks. Uh, lots of things there on how to choose a therapist, how to help a loved one in distress. We have a whole course on how you'll help a loved one in distress uh, that's available to folks. And we've got also other, a whole bunch of other resources in there, pornography and marriage. When that gets discovered, we have a course on that. So we're, we're aspiring to be the, the number one go-to place for Catholics interested in psychology that want to actually grow both in the spiritual and in the natural realm. So. Peter, this has been a great blessing for Chris and me, for our listeners. Thanks for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association coming to you from the virtual studios today of Redeemer Radio. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen. Care more about the arguer than the argument. And please send us your questions and your comments, even if it sounds like hate mail. Tell us there's uh, <laughs> something you want to hear that you haven't heard, or maybe something that changed your life. And above all, be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.